Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this week we are going to discuss episode 19 of season 4 of Supergirl titled American Dreamer. Last week, Kara decided to sort of lay off her Supergirl identity and lean more into Kara Danvers, the reporter. And so this week we see her not appear as Supergirl at all. No, which was kind of fun, actually. Yeah, it was fun seeing her zip around in <laughs> Kara Danvers' outfits. Kara truly was a like fantasy fulfillment in this episode of being able to get through menial work tasks quickly. <laughs> like, yes, I was sitting there like, oh, I wish I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> I've been waiting for something like that because we saw, you know, Red Daughter, Kazni, Kara, Speed Read, and we hadn't really seen the same sort of thing from Kara. No, I just thought back to like Midvale. That would be so funny to see in a flashback. Like, no wonder Alex is constantly annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kara's getting like speed ready. <laughs> Kara's finished reading the book for class in like five seconds. <laughs> and she didn't retain anything about history. <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> so we didn't see her in the super suit, but... We saw her in her reporter outfits, including her uh, Supergirl red blazer at one point, which was kind of cool. Yeah. But it's also evidence that Kara's advanced in her career, if you look at how her wardrobe has shifted at Catco since season one. Yeah. Now that she's in front of the camera, she has fancier clothes. Mm-hmm. I remember getting really excited when we had set photos of Kara Danvers in the first episode of the season. And I was like, oh, it's like her, her wardrobe is upgraded and she's a real reporter now. <laughs> she's a grown up now. Yes. It felt very Lois Lane, the look, and I've enjoyed that. So we had the Supergirl red blazer and we also had Kara channel her Supergirl persona in her Car Danvers attire with instead of cape tricks, we have coat tricks. And it was funny because after last week, I was wondering if we were going to see that again after they spent time on it in season three. And then I was like, oh, cool. Here it is. Oh, yeah. It was just interesting for me because it was sort of stylistically reminiscent of Manchester Black's fighting style earlier in the season, mm. like not toward the end so much, but his more avoidant style because, you know, he believed in nonviolence at that point. And then the fact that Kara's fighting style here was sort of similar ties in nicely with her sort of helping in a different way storyline, the same way that Jean had a helping in a different way storyline with the nonviolence. So, mm. And we also saw Kara use freeze breath as Kara Danvers again to sort of be stealthy and like secretly help out. Like she froze the door when the Adamaratech yeah. to prevent them from coming in. Mm-hmm. And then she like casually used her freeze breath in Kako with the Children of Liberty that she knocked over. I just find it like the funniest thing that this of all her powers is the one that she relies upon a lot to make things happen without seeming like it's her. It's like, oh, it's just a gust of wind. <laughs> this is fine and totally normal and not weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it like it works because you can't immediately associate it with like a person doing that like wind. But well, yeah, but like in the one where they're stuck in the records room, like <laughs> yeah. that was a little straining your credulity because it's like the other woman in there is going to wonder right? why the door froze out of nowhere. <laughs> like. Uh, well, she said something to her, like, as she was about to look at the door. And I was like, yeah, I wonder if that was her trying to get her not to notice. But that's how I tried to interpret it. <laughs> and as is often the case when they highlight Kara's dual identities, we saw people say things to Kara as Kara Danvers that she can, like, relate to and would be able to have, like, a response for. But because her alien superhero identity is a secret, she wasn't able to respond, which is a very classical Supergirl move for the show to do. We saw Franklin and the reporter's sister Edna say to Kara, I'm sorry, but you don't know what it's like to walk around with a target on your back just because of what you are, which is just funny because not only does she understand in terms of like being an alien, but Supergirl is public enemy number one (laughs) right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And then she also says something about when Kara is kind of trying to urge her to pull files from Amertech, Edna responds by pointing out that if she does that, it could put her family and her friends in danger. And Mm. Kara just has to sit there and not be like, (laughs) yeah, I relate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's funny because Kara has like great people skills, but it's like she's trying to connect with them with one hand tied behind her back. She can't employ the full toolbox of, I relate to you and I can empathize with 
with you and connect to you that she normally can. We also see with Lena, when Lena says, you just care about me a little less than you do as a source for your story, Kara's like, no, no, it's not like that. I wish I could explain, which is another situation that we see come up a lot, specifically with Kara and Lena. Well, and they had it a couple of times with Kara and Alex as well, since Mm. the mind wipe. Yeah. And that sort of takes us to Kara's arc in this episode relating to Lena and relating to reporting. She was very focused (laughs) on reporting and not much else in this episode initially. Yeah. So she's kind of doubled down on her reporter mystery solving skills, which again was a nice build on seeing her from even the flashback to when she was a kid and how she was kind of into doing those kinds of things. (laughs) But to the point that Kara, who's usually so aware of other people and good at relating to other people, happens to overhear Franklin, her co-worker, mention something she's researching for her story and she's so business-like about it that she just ignores the fact that he's like in pajamas under his desk with a toothbrush because he's living there. (laughs) She doesn't... She doesn't even notice, really. Yeah, when Nia points it out, she has like a, oh, (laughs) look on her face. She completely has like a blind spot. (laughs) Yeah, which is not like her, but it was interesting because it reminded me a bit of how intensely focused she got on one side of her identity in the beginning of season three. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of a flip side to that. Like there, she was very focused on being Supergirl because she felt like that was the only way she could meaningfully help and do anything. And here she's been kind of diving into the reporting because she feels a little bit trapped and like that's the only way that she can do anything. Yeah. Well, I've also seen it as sort of half the same and half a contrast because in both situations, she feels like this is what she's supposed to be doing and like the way she's supposed to help. But in season three, she's also avoiding her Cara Danvers identity for like emotional reasons and and not wanting to sort of feel the pain of that and have those human connections because she fears it. And that was also something we saw in episode 15 of this season with Kara not being there with Alex and James when James was like dying. Yeah. (laughs) She was off with John and helping him. And like, she also thought that this was the best place to put her energy, but she came to the realization because of Alex's confrontation that she was avoiding it for emotional reasons and the pain of the situation. And in that episode, there was sort of a parallel with Cora in present day and the story that Kelly told about James and how he would run off and dive into something dangerous to sort of cope with their home life. So they had a parallel there and they also had sort of parallel situations in this episode. Similarly, this is a situation with James in the past where he wasn't there for his father's funeral and wasn't there for Kelly, but he had quite a good reason for not making it. Yeah. Which we will talk about. And in this situation, I tend to think that Kara was more making a logical choice than avoiding anything. Like she just thought that in this situation, it was best for her to channel her focus into Kara Danvers' reporter. Says, exposing Lex is the only way I can help right now. And then she says to Edna, what's happening is wrong, but the only way we can stop is by exposing the people that are committing these crimes. So she thinks that, you know, this is the best way for her to help everybody. So there's sort of a parallel of slightly more legitimate reasons there. However, it has made Car blind to certain things like with Franklin, poor Franklin. And then she also hadn't really thought about how she hasn't made an appearance as Car Danvers with Lena lately. Like she supported Lena quite consistently. But as Supergirl. In general. Yeah. yeah but as Supergirl. <laughs> and, you know, Cara Danvers as a person serves a different role in Lena's life in terms of being like a real friend. <laughs> yeah. Supergirl is a symbol and getting her approval is probably nice. But Cara Danvers is her best friend who she feels safe opening up to generally. Well, should be able to. <laughs> in theory. In theory, yes. And so Cara's like, oh, I thought I had put in time and, and supported her enough. But obviously, from Linda's point of view, she hasn't been around at all. And it's interesting because we see Kara say, I've made things worse in channeling all of her energy into Kara Danvers reporter because she felt the same way last week regarding being Supergirl. Minor problems. <laughs> and speaking of concepts that we see pop up with Kara, she says to Lena, I'm so sorry you felt like you couldn't tell me, which is familiar wording. Mm. She said to Alex back in season two when Alex eventually came out to her, I think I owe you an apology for not creating an environment where you felt like you could talk about this with me. And it's interesting because with Alex, it was that Alex felt like she couldn't open up because Kara had so many other problems things to deal with yeah. <laughs> all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like Alex was withholding it because of an emotional concern for like adding to Kara's problems or feeling like Kara's problems were a lot bigger to worry about. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Lena, it's mostly just like Lena in her own head 
yeah, she <laughs> she just has trouble opening up to people in general. And then it's interesting that we had those two quotes that connect well with each other because, as we've talked about before, Lena appeared right at the same time as Kara was coming to that realization with Alex, and Kara was making the effort to give Alex more space to, you know, have her own feelings in their relationship. And I've talked about how I kind of feel like Kara kind of goes overboard with Lena in the sense that Lena tends to have like all of the all of the space, <laughs> yes. All of the space in their relationship. And like we said, in part because Kara has secrets, but also she reacts like there's an imbalance in their relationship and she's not putting out enough energy when, in fact, she puts out lots of energy all the time to make sure that Lena is doing okay. And as long as we are comparing Lena and Alex in their relationship with Kara, obviously we see that Kara's relationship with Alex is really consistent. And even if they argue, there isn't a risk that their sisterhood is going to break. No, we talked about this before we started recording. I don't think we've ever seen them argue where it's lasted for more than like a couple days, maybe. Yes. <laughs> Even when they're mad at each other for some really serious things, like yeah. they find a way to get over it. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of goes back to the idea that Kara said to Lena, actually, like when you're family, you can say the things you need to say and like, it'll still be okay. But Lena has this issue on her side of the relationship where everything's a little bit shakier. Like you're never quite sure that if Kara admits something on her side that she did wrong, that Lena will continue to be her friend because, you know, she has a lot of interpersonal issues to deal with and having healthy relationships. But she makes a step forward in this episode. So that's nice. And we'll talk about that. She does. <laughs> but for Kara, it's interesting because she said she was being too myopic. Mm, which is funny in the sense that she supposedly wears glasses because she's nearsighted. <laughs> Kara Danvers, that works. That's nice. It does. But reporting itself ended up being still like the right call to help everybody. It was just more in tune with people's like emotions and inspiring hope, which is more Kara, actually, and less focused on the factual secret uncovering side of reporting, but also included that. Yes. <laughs> in interviewing Nia as Dreamer, Kara ended up inspiring everybody in the group and in National City. Like we saw reaction shots of the various characters toward the end of the episode and how the broadcast affected them. We saw specifically, you know, speaking of reporting, Edna was inspired by it and ended up, you know, being quite brave in risking her job and perhaps more in getting some uh, records for Kara. Yep. Which was nice in terms of if you're going to represent reporting, showing how vital sources are, sources who put their lives and their livelihood at risk for reporters and getting the truth out there. Yeah. And the other cool thing that they played up in that storyline was, again, we had the introduction of another sibling dynamic, mm. which might be a hint that the end of the season is going to be like really heavy on sibling dynamics. I'm excited. I am ready for that showdown. <laughs> siblings versus siblings. Which Alex will win? <laughs> Which car will win? <laughs> I know, right? That's funny. <laughs> the cars versus the Alexes. And then we have Lena as the wild card. <laughs> yes, as the person who is in a way in both families. <laughs> yeah, and it's also interesting when you go back and consider that Lena started out the season insisting that she doesn't want to take sides or ha. doesn't take sides and she very clearly has done that mm, yeah that's a nice round out there yeah and that takes us to Lena in this episode. We saw her have a very classical Lena response to the events that were occurring in that she wanted to, you know, work by herself or felt she needed to work by herself to fix the problem. And we also saw her very typical reaction of lashing out when she feels stressed. Yeah. So as we know, Lena does not have the healthiest coping mechanisms. And we saw one of her faves in this episode. And it was the thing that Lex has made reference too with their father having been an alcoholic. And also that the Luthers genetically have a disposition toward alcoholism. Yeah, so we see Lena frustrated that she hasn't been able to make any progress either on finding Lex or helping James. And when Kara arrives, Lena's alone in her office and she's already downed at least one whole drink, gets another and drinks it in the middle of the conversation. So hmm. she's clearly not entirely sober. Mm -hmm. 
throughout the course of that conversation, much like when we saw her kind of lash out verbally at Kara last season at Sam's, Mm. when she initially says these kind of hurtful things to Kara about maybe their friendship or herself. And she does the same thing here in this scene. Yeah. Because deep down, we realize over the course of the episode, she doesn't actually mean what she's saying. She does know that Kara cares about her. (laughs) Yeah, she says, you just care about me a little less than you do as a source for your story, which... Which, given that Kara was probably already a little aware of how she missed being emotionally sensitive to Franklin, Hmm. was probably in her mind because she did try to be not totally blunt. Yeah. (laughs) With like, so um, I came across this thing and maybe you'll know and presumably you want to help me. (laughs) (laughs) Since it is your goal as well. Yeah. Yeah. In the scene, she does like mention Eve and how that must have been difficult for Lena. Yeah. And you can tell Lena's already bitter. In the way she responds to that and kind of upset maybe finding a reason. Yeah. It's weirdly similar in some ways to how Alex's attempt at talking to Haley blows up in her face last episode. But Kara actually did attempt to like build on a strong emotional connection Mm -hmm. instead of manufacturing one out of nowhere. Yeah. It just didn't quite work because Lena was already past the point of thinking well of herself. Mm. And so she just doesn't want to hear. I think some of it is that just Kara being Kara gets to Lena when she's in moods like that because she doesn't think she deserves it. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. She sort of bristles at the compassion. Stop acting like you care about me. I'm terrible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and it's funny in that same scene, she also mentions Supergirl. And she's like, Supergirl's been there for me, person who judges me on the very premise of my last name, which is funny because you would think the two parts of that sentence would conflict with each other. Like Lena seemed convinced when Supergirl explained that it wasn't how she feels about Lena as a Luther, but that it was her own personal feelings about the matter that were making her angry with her. But now that Lena is in a darker place, she's perceiving, you know, both Supergirl and Kara and probably anybody else who would have attempted the same thing, the same kind of compassion Mm. as being maybe insincere or secretly not caring about her. And it's like she's accusing other people of thinking badly of her because she herself thinks badly because she's failing in her own eyes and she's kind of going in a spiral back to her more negative frame of mind that she occasionally returns to and projecting that onto other people that hatred of Lena is easier than admitting that she herself feels weak or or shame or feels like a failure and this ties into her whole psychology and like the way she falls back on certain habits in this episode. One of her biggest habits is working alone. And this season in particular, it's pretty much her arc because all of the things that she has done that are morally questionable only happened because she wasn't allowing other people to have input. She doesn't have like a committee at L Corp that is working with her on the Haranel. And she only had Eve who turned out to be, you know. Secretly evil. Evil, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it was nice that we intentionally were being told that we were supposed to take note of whether or not Lena's made any progress because we had James back in the basement torture dungeon. (laughs) Awesome. Mm. But yeah, the use of the set that they had for Sam when Lena essentially kept her down there even though she wanted to leave and (laughs) wouldn't let her call Alex. Wouldn't let her call Supergirl either. Or anyone. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, Supergirl can't help you. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And insisted that she had to do it alone Mm. or that only she could do it. This is a very big contrast to that because she's there with James, but so are the rest of the people who care about James. Mm -hmm. And she's at least somewhat willing to listen and let them help her. Well, I mean, I don't necessarily think that she does because... Brainy does that whole thing with James while she's not in there. Yeah, but she also (laughs) wasn't working actively with Brainy. Brainy came up with the theory of how to help James afterwards. Like, she takes the Ameritech device and I read it as Lena wanting to be alone to work on it. And then Kelly was like, that's not going to work. We need another plan. Oh, fair. But so Lena takes the Ameritech device that she thinks she'll be able to tweak into helping James and make it take the Haranel out. So it's kind of like Lena's trying to undo what she did to James as opposed to Brainy's plan, which ends up being more like adapting and trying to cope with this new situation. Brainy kind of takes like a triage approach to it as opposed to like wanting to surgically dive in and fix it immediately. Yeah. Lena is like, I need to solve this entire problem right now, (laughs) which 
makes sense for her. Brainy's like, how about we stabilize it first? (laughs) Yes. And then later on, she says to Brainy, I feel so paralyzed right now because I'm not able to move forward. I can't fix Lex. I can't fix James. And it's just interesting because it was after Brainy had told her that they came up with something to help James. Yeah, and that she has more time now. Yeah. And it was after Kara came to Lena saying that she was actively trying to find Lex. So the two problems that she's trying to solve, other people are also trying to fix. But she, you know, pulls herself up in her office and tries to fix it with just her brain power and not working with other people. So it's just interesting to see that she has the opportunity to work with these other people to fix her problems, but she still feels like she needs to fix it herself in the way that we've seen in the past couple seasons. But then she sees Nia's broadcast and specifically she hears her like open up and be vulnerable about her loss of her mother and then she also hears how she relies upon her father and those things combined (laughs) trigger something in lena and that she recognizes that she's not being open and vulnerable and she's not relying upon the people around her and brainy ends up giving her some great advice you know he relates to her he says i understand that you've been betrayed by many people in your life lena i know that feeling too but if you want to be trusted and accepted then you must also trust which gets to the core of some of lena's issues and it's interesting because earlier this season we saw Lena give Brainy the advice about little boxes and putting your emotions into it to be able to focus mm. and perhaps forever if you're Lena but it's sort of a flip because Brainy's now giving her advice and it's kind of the very opposite of suppressing your emotions it is instead opening up and letting people see that you're vulnerable and letting people help you with those emotions a better way to cope with tricky emotions long term <laughs> Yes. And I actually, I liked that whole scene. It was very quiet in a way, but the dynamic that the two characters have with each other is really nice. And I think part of the reason maybe Lena will take Brainy seriously is because he's just so stoic and data driven. So it's like Mm. if he's saying something in this episode, especially he was really heavy on giving percentages and statistics for things. Yeah, And so I think that resonates for her in a way where she might take it seriously as opposed to like when Kara comes at her with like emotion words. (laughs) Yeah, that's too much. It's like getting a professional opinion from another scientist. (laughs) Exactly. But about emotions. A 99.9% chance of sorrow. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) And Brainy's advice drives Lena to then go to Kara to sort of apologize, but to make the decision to open up emotionally and tell one of the secrets that has been on Lena's mind about how she wanted to save Lex's life with the Hornell serum. And she phrased it like she was working with him. It's funny because she opens with the worst way that she could phrase it. Like, (laughs) I was secretly working with Lex too, which is certainly an interesting way to perceive it. Lena herself is seeing it in the worst possible light. But Lena tells Kara and she like fears Kara judging her and thinking that she, you know, is a terrible Luther, essentially. But Kara says, in life or death situations, you help family. No one can judge you for that. So we had a sort of typical Supergirl moment of forgiveness in the show, which is always nice to see. Yeah. And it also felt very similar to the way Kara kind of took in the information and steeled herself and accepted it like in the scene she had with Alex in season Mm -hmm. one as well with the whole part about finding out Alex had killed her aunt. Yeah, it was a bit of a face journey. It was, but this was similarly personal Mm -hmm. in a way. And so the tone was really similar in a nice kind of, there were a lot of similarities between like Kara and Lena and Kara and Alex in this episode actually. Yeah. And even with that line in life or death situations, you help family know can judge you for that. That reminds me of like how Alex is and... (laughs) That is Alex, like, all the way. All the time. (laughs) And Kara is accepting of that, even though she herself might make certain different decisions. Like, she would choose maybe the greater good over family in certain scenarios where Alex wouldn't. But she recognizes that that is a value choice and that she shouldn't judge her for that. And even the line in life or death situations, you help family, no one can judge you for that. It even sounds like Alex saving Jean's life from Astra. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting parallel dynamic. But so Lena, you know, hears this and then she has a nice little cry out and eventually Kara and Lena end up working together, which is a step forward for Lena and in line with the themes of the show, Stronger Together. And Kara and Lena with the Lex problem move forward, which is something that Lena said earlier that she wasn't able to do. And I love how important friendships are in the show just in general. Yes. I always like to say that when there's a big emotional storyline regarding just like friends. So this was nice to see. And that ending scene with the two of them was great because Kara... (laughs) And the food and like eating in the background of the whole process of figuring it out. 
That was amazing. It's, it kind of reminds me of like Alex in the background of certain scenes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like with alcohol and um, sneaking the beer out of the. Or like in season one where Kara was being flirted with and you have Alex texting in the background <laughs> yes. and just making these faces like, mm. oh my God, Kara. <laughs> yes. So the background acting can be fun. And also it was a nice little prop detail that they were having the burgers because Cosney and Kara had picked up on that from reading Kara's diary that that was like mm. a friend bonding activity that they do. Yeah. And now they're going to go on a journey together. So they together figure out that Rubnew is Cosnia because Lena has like insider information in terms of how Lex's brain works. And she picks up on the fake name that he uses of Sebastian Melmoth. Which is such just a pompous, like, he reminds me of like the guy in your MFA meme. Like, that's <laughs> what I think of yeah. every time we learn more information about teenage boy Lex. And I'm like, I'd like to slap you in the face. Every time. <laughs> it's like Lena <laughs> said in um, the last episode, so pretentious. <laughs> he really is. But it is funny that he chose this name because it's not surprising to me that teenage rich boy Lex Luthor <laughs> gravitated toward this idea of renaming yourself in a way to make yourself feel important. I love that he insisted on making his whole family call him by this random name. <laughs> like, that's such a fanboy thing to do. Mm. That's amazing. So Lex decides to name himself after Oscar Wilde's alter ego, Sebastian Melmoth, which is a name that is combined from the religious figure, St. Sebastian, who apparently survived multiple attempts at being killed before he became a saint. And also the title character, Melmoth the Wanderer, from a book by Oscar Wilde's uncle. And the character of Melmoth was apparently a scholar who sold his soul to the devil in order to live an extra 150 years, which, given all the stuff that's happened, happened with Lex in this plotline makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it also makes sense because Oscar Wilde chose this name right after he was released from prison. Ha, I like it. See, but part of me wonders, though, if Lex isn't using stuff that Lena's going to recognize on purpose and there's mm. still like some additional weird mind trap coming. Yeah. I mean, given the way everything happened in the last episode with Lena finding all the clues, it just felt very set up. Yeah. So we'll see how well this turns out for them. Apparently, they're going to have a trip to Cosnia. Road trip. Oh, my God. It'll be like Kara and Alex's road trip to Midvale, but not. <laughs> Actually, phrasing it like road trip with Kara and Lena makes me think of Melissa's comment about them being like Mary-Kate and Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is. Mary-Kate and Ashley, trip to Cosnia. <laughs> <laughs> and we have also made jokes about the Olsen twins because there's two Olsons now. Look, it's all coming together. We wow. are the conspiracy theory board right now. <laughs> So they're going to Kaznia. <laughs> yes, I actually really liked that Melissa's done some really interesting dialect and accent work throughout this whole season. Mm. But specifically in this episode, she did a few different things. Number one, she used a really American accent when she said Kaznia, which I liked because that's really accentuating the contrast between Kara as Kara Danvers and Kara as the Kara who speaks Russian. <laughs> and she also had Kara using a national broadcaster type type of accent when she did her introduction to the Nia story on the news. Mm -hmm. It wasn't her natural speaking voice. So those were some nice little details snuck in there. Yeah. And so that takes us to Nia, who in the way that Kara had a storyline about being myopic and focusing too much on certain aspects of her reporting, we had Nia be really, really focused on fighting crime. Specifically. <laughs> and looking cool while doing it. <laughs> yep. She was successful. I would like to know how much time she spent coming up with all those cool nerdy superhero puns for herself. We saw Kara have a big board of clues about Lex. I want to see Nia's catchphrase board. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she's got her own little like black book with just a list of them. <laughs> but she sort of takes the lead in fighting crime while Supergirl is away. Which was very fitting given that she really accepted Kara as this mentor figure mm. throughout the season and is kind of getting the chance to come into her own. It felt very nice, especially since in the opening scene, I don't know if everyone caught it, but when you see the alien kind of go to hide in the van, it says Parthas on the side, which is the town that Nia's from. Mm. So her first action that we get to see is her defending an alien from her own hometown, yeah. which was kind of cool. Mm. 
But it's funny because as she is really leaning into this uh, crime fighting, she has very like action hero-y moments. Mm. <laughs> like the scene you just mentioned ends with her writing Sleeping Beauty on the one guy's forehead. As Brainy is urging her to get out of there before she gets caught. <laughs> it's totally like do it for the vine. <laughs> <laughs> Nia is a true member of Gen Z. Yes. Which is fitting <laughs> like in terms of distinguishing Dreamer with like Supergirl and like how they operate because they have a lot of the same values and aren't like broody characters and enjoy helping people, but they have like different styles of <laughs> operating. And then it's just funny because Sleeping Beauty and she's Dreamer. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then I laughed when she was like, I'm your worst nightmare because all I could think of was that scene where Mushu tries to be intimidating in Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And some other one-liner puns that she says are, someone needs to make Lockwood go nighty-night-night, and isn't it past your bedtime? Yeah, that was very like traditional comic book action hero yes. kind of dialogue. And it's like, Nia, have you been binging too many like comic movies, or are you just like this? Either way, it's great. But... <laughs> well, we've seen her be sort of excited about being a superhero yes. and how she's very much a fan of that. True sort of celebrating that aspect of it and kind of being a hero that she might see on TV. She says the sort of classic hero phrase that we see in Supergirl of, you're safe now. Yeah, and that was cool in the sense that it's the first time we've gotten to see Nia say it because the show's made a point to repeat it over and over this season from Kara and also from Jean. Mm. And the only times people ever actually seem to take it seriously are when Kara says it. Just in time for this thing, event to happen with Red Daughter. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And I I was expecting that because I was like, there's no way they're not setting this up to have it all come crashing down. Mm -hmm. That would be silly. <laughs> That's how TV works. Uh, <laughs> but you think Nia is saying it in a moment of genuine victory as opposed to when Jean says it to the Lockwoods <laughs> while their house is on fire. But Nia's excited because she just did this really hard thing because she defeated all the bad guys on her own. Mm -hmm. And she's like, everybody's safe now. Like, they're gone. They're not going to come arrest you. And she says it with the same kind of confidence that Kara has and the same intentions. But she misreads kind of the broader fear that's present in the situation where these are people who are sleeping in a bar because they're afraid to be in their homes. And even though she may have saved them in this moment, these Nazi-like government agents still know where they are. And this location is no longer safe for them, yeah. period. So yeah, she's like super excited about <laughs> super <laughs> about taking the lead and, and being this like very action hero-y superhero character, you know, like a character so much that she sort of tunnel visions on that aspect of it and sort of misreads this situation. And then she also is somewhat destructive. A little bit. Yeah. So in the first one where she's fighting the random guys and she's busy writing on their foreheads, she doesn't even check to make sure that the guy in the van is okay mm -hmm. or make sure that he gets away before the Children of Liberty show up. Yeah. Like he's still there. <laughs> so what happened to him. And then later, even when she's in Catco, she jumps up on the desk and then like kicks all the computers over <sighs> so that she has more room to like, I don't know, lasso dream energy at people. She knocks down all the water for the refugees so she can use it to zap things. Like, yeah. I mean, it was useful, but on the other hand, I mean, they need that to live. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of reminiscent of season one with Kara as Supergirl mm. and her destruction and that oil spill. <sighs> when there was a fire on a boat and then she, in moving the boat, broke it open and oil spilled into the... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Nia is going through these same sort of growing pains, but then she has sort of a wake-up call with this character at the bar who says, safe, you know, in response to her, you're safe now. They didn't get us today, but they'll be back. We're aliens. Nowhere is safe. And so it becomes more real. And in terms of grounding it and recognizing how serious the situation is, there was also that kid earlier in the scene in the bar who came up to Dreamer and said, I don't know how to make my bed. Can you help me, please? Which was the most upsetting thing <laughs> in the episode. Yeah, that was not cool, show. <laughs> yeah. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> Yeah, it felt like a very real moment in terms of even watching the show mm. and recognizing that this is a parallel with like real people and the harm that, again, you know, can befall children, which has been a running motif. So after this sort of revelation, Nia goes from taking the lead and fighting crime to 
sort of taking the lead and inspiring hope as Dreamer. And she gets right on board with Kara's plan immediately, which was very cute. <laughs> and it's funny, sort of rounding out, we have Nia at the start of the episode telling Kara that she should come and fight crime with her as Supergirl. And then she ends up going the other direction herself as Dreamer, engaging with this journalism. And she gives a hope speech, which is a nice sort of parallel with Kara's hope speech at the end of season one. It was. Then it was also interesting because in both of those speeches, Kara and Nia inspired hope in people of National City by referencing their like personal experiences and loss and, you know, kindness from the people who live on Earth. Yeah. And the other thing that was really neat about that scene and the way it was framed was, first of all, when I was watching it the second time, there's actually this kind of like alien crystal-like thing on the table hmm. out of the view of the camera as they're doing the broadcast. So I wonder if that's how Kara managed to get things to like override, even the DEO's hmm. monitors and stuff like that. But in keeping with that, everything about that broadcast was completely produced and created by aliens, mm -hmm. which was really, really a cool moment in the show. I mean, even if Franklin doesn't know that <laughs> yet, it was really cool to see these three characters who are all in a place that is inclusive enough that they felt like they had the resources to band together and do something to speak up for other members of their minority group who were afraid and who couldn't. Mm. And then we got to see the reactions from like all those people who had been hiding in the bar and in addition to the characters that we already know and to see how much that mattered yeah. for everyone. So it was great. It was a nice tying in of like National City and the people, which is something that we'd expected them to emphasize this season. Yeah. Well, and then on top of that, you had the awesome moment where Nia made the decision to talk about being both trans and like a bi-species person. Mm -hmm. So that was really awesome as far as being kind of like a groundbreaking moment within the TV of the show itself, but then also just on TV for real. Mm. So it was a weirdly meta kind of moment. <laughs> yes. And it was also relatively subtle in that it wasn't being promoted as like a whole big deal thing in advance of the episode. It was just like, here it is. Yeah. This is what it is. We as a show are proud of it. The characters and the actors are proud of it if you're not too bad. <laughs> So we saw Nia as Dreamer be kind of representative of, I guess, like the melting pot vision of America. And it was funny because they played American Woman as sort of a theme for Nia in the episode, which was fun and tied back into the title of the episode, American Dreamer. And speaking of storylines that are like positive representation, we saw James grapple with mental illness in this episode, which was nice because kind of like they did with Nia earlier in the season in how they subtly reinforce that she is a woman with the passing down of the dreamer powers to the women in her species. Mm. We saw mental illness as like a legitimate kind of illness. Yeah. As valid and real as other sorts of like physical illnesses in how Brittany said Lena's drug was designed to attack illness. In this case, it was focused on the PTSD, heightening what would normally be just a panic attack. So, Well, the other interesting thing about that is that when Lena was creating this drug, she said she wanted to use it to get rid of everything that makes humans week. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting. That's a less like positive way to perceive mental illness. Maybe that's how they'll fix Lena's issues. <laughs> oh God. But we see that, you know, it didn't fix James. No. It heightened everything that he was dealing with so much so that Brainy went into James's mind in his mind palace, which is fun because the mind palace concept, something we saw in season three with Brainy and Kara in her apartment, is where we got the Supergirl's attic name because we <laughs> dive into the characters of Supergirl's minds and uncover things and uncover other sorts of things you would find in an attic. <laughs> historical books <laughs> old sci-fi VHS tapes and then in the course of working with James and talking about figuring out how to help him Brainy specifically mentions about how the trauma being unblocked is what's triggering all of these kind of dangerous reactions which is kind of like an additional subtle hint that Lena's box system mm. isn't always the best strategy because what do you do when the boxes break? Yeah. 
But so Brainy says if James is able to identify and face his core trauma, he may be able to manage the attack. So in this episode, we see them sort of discover James's core trauma. They first start off at the Daily Planet, and James recognizes that it is around the first time that he was kidnapped by Lex. But then the two bullies run toward him, and it propels them to go deeper. And they find out that his core trauma is related to his father's death and being trapped by those bullies. Yeah, that was awful in like a good way. Yeah. (laughs) In that it wasn't something I was anticipating, which as we've said before, that's always like a fun surprise, (laughs) even when it's something terrible. Yeah. But it makes sense in terms of like when we've talked about James mm-hmm. and why he makes the decisions that he does and why he values the things that he does, it ties back to his father and his father's death and his father being a soldier. And we see in this episode, as James is with his father before his father's funeral, he says, I promise I will spend my life making you proud. And then these mm-hmm. sort of very traumatic events follow that. Which is interesting because that's very similar to kind of Kara's reaction to the last words from her family. There are lots of parallels we can begin to make with James and Kara because of the storyline, which is nice. Indeed. Speaking of, we have James being trapped by these bullies in a coffin. Yeah, that's messed up. And I hope those children grew into adults who were plagued by the horror of what they did. (laughs) Yeah. And James like suppresses this memory and sort of translates it to, I got locked in the bathroom and nobody could hear me. So there's still that aspect of being trapped there, but it's in a more palatable form for him. Well, and also it kind of spared, much like other characters will do, spared his mom, who we find out was so emotionally distraught that day anyway, from having to cope with the horror of the fact that these kids came and like locked her son in a coffin in the bottom of the funeral parlor. Mm. And then he missed his dad's whole funeral because of that. Like, could you imagine if on top of all that other stuff, it's like, oh, no, we have to go deal with these kids' families and... Mm, yeah. But it, it's interesting in how we've talked about this entire season, James and, and feeling trapped and controlled and how he doesn't mm-hmm. like it and specifically how he doesn't like being trapped and controlled and prevented from helping people. Yeah. Just like he was trapped and prevented from being there for Kelly and with his mom during the funeral. And we saw that idea kind of culminate in like a dramatic sense in the scene in the White House when he was sort of paralyzed Mm. and unable to help the people around him who were being attacked by Red Daughter. Yep. And then the other aspect of that is bullying, something that we've talked about before with James and they've brought up before with him. But that's interesting as a concept for like Jimmy Olsen, who in the comics was like a skinny little white guy and kind of the like classic image of of the nerd. Yeah. Yeah. The nerd who would be bullied. Which is interesting now that you say that because James in the flashback is dressed up kind of like the Mm. way you would expect that like geeky character with the shirt and tie kind of thing. Yeah. Only for a much more upsetting reason. (laughs) Quite. But it's interesting in terms of moving away from telling stories about that like classical like skinny white nerd kid Mm. and like feeling like those stories have been told enough and now branching out and telling the stories of different types of minorities and specifically with James we've heard him say like racism is the oldest form of bullying. So I just really appreciate this take on Jimmy Olsen for that reason. Yeah. But so James's reaction to this, because of how he promised his father that he would make him proud, his father, who again was like a soldier, and he feels shame for what happened to him. He says, I must have pushed the shame of the memory so far down, I forgot. And the bullies in that situation were saying, like, dead daddy can't save you, but you think your baby sister can, when she was calling out to him. Which is so horrible. But then in a nice way of rounding it out, she actually does. Mm, in the present. That is nice. Because she goes in there because no one can draw him out psychologically. Mm, I like that. So that was really nice how they did that. But that ties into his resistance to Kelly and her help that we saw before. Yes, true. Like he doesn't like feeling trapped and controlled and he also doesn't like when Kelly tries to help him. And that ties into the idea of like, I feel like I shouldn't need help. I feel like I should be strong enough to just get over it. So he feels like he should have been able to just fight the bullies and get out of the coffin himself and doesn't need his father or his sister to help him. And then, you know, like you said, Kelly comes and she says to him, you can change this narrative, you can fight back, which is nice in terms of the sort of metaphor of 
facing this event head on and dealing with it, giving him like power, mm. the power to fight back and the power to fight back without hurting people with like the destructive power of his sort of Kryptonian like powers. Yeah. I also really liked the image of the mental construction of him as an adult being able to reach back out to himself mm. as a kid because this is actually kind of funny. There was this quote that I read years ago that I've always had in the back of my mind as a parent. And it's that you can't unknow or undo the bad things that happen to yourself, but you can mature into an adult who can be there for that kid. Mm. And that was really well represented visually yeah. in that moment of James kind of making peace with those things that happened to him and saying, like, I can help now. Like to himself, but also that's what he does for others. Yeah. You'll see in like psychology and, and like self-help or otherwise, this concept of the inner child and specifically dealing with like childhood trauma, thinking of your hurt as like a child, mm -hmm. yourself as a kid and having compassion for that kid, which can be easier than having compassion for yourself as an adult. So that is a nice mm -hmm. tie in there. Yeah. But so this gives James the ability to control his powers, which are very Kryptonian-like so far. Yeah. We'll see how maybe they differ or if they do, but we see him use heat vision, super hearing, flight, super strength. Yeah. And it was interesting that when he came out of the kind of like the mind palace construct, he was floating in the air, much like how we saw Sam at the end mm -hmm. of last season. Yeah. You see it as the similar kind of like almost a victory moment, which again, actually we kind of saw in that one positive moment of Cosney and Kara where she gets like positive feelings and then she's floating in the air. Mm -hmm. So that's been a cool kind of consistent use of flight for showing like these triumphant kind of character moments. Yeah. And also being free. Yeah. With Kazuya Kara, it was a moment where she was able to be outside and be sort of free. With Sam, she was free of rain. And with James, it's like he got out of the coffin, tying into his issues with feeling trapped. So that is a nice tie in there. It is. And then other little thing that was kind of cool in in the way that James came out of this kind of like mental construct and looked at Kelly and says, I saw dad. It was very similar to in season one when Jean and Alex are in like the truck to be carted off to Cadmus and Jean gets into the guy's head and then sees Jeremiah and he says almost the exact same thing to Alex. So <laughs> that was kind of cool just in that David got to direct it, <laughs> yeah, which is probably a little bit why it's similar. But also it continues to build on what I've been pointing out all season about these kind of similar stories and character commonalities with James and Alex mm -hmm. that they're finally using. And I'm so excited. <laughs> I mean, it's also to set up some other things for Alex, but it's still nice. <laughs> Speaking of the other thing, uh, Kelly. <laughs> the other Olsen. So this was Kelly's kind of like crash course introduction to the super friends. <laughs> After the incident in the hospital where she was very resistant to Lena helping and and hadn't gotten to be around Brainy all that often. And it was really funny, kind of as a joke to the audience, that you have Brainy explaining the idea of memories working like a watercolor and Kelly walks out and Brainy's like, was it my metaphor? Because he wasn't present when she gave the whole Jello metaphor description <laughs> about trauma. Yes. So... That was just a nice sly little mm -hmm. joke, which was entertaining, which was necessary because the rest <laughs> of this story was heartbreaking. Yeah, it sure was. Um, and getting to that aspect. Traumatized younger siblings, a thing that will resonate hard with some characters. <laughs> yeah. So Kelly was not just, you know, helping James deal with his trauma in this episode. She had some trauma of her own to grapple with from when she was eight years old, which is another interesting case of seeing the effects of what happens to children and seeing sort of the traumatic event that happened when they were kids and how it shapes them into adults. Kelly, at her father's funeral, felt like she was alone because she says, James swore to me that he would be by my side. And she also thought that maybe her mother would die as well. Yeah, like, yikes. That's a lot <laughs> for a little, yeah. little kid because at that point, you're not old enough to reason logically in the same way as a teenager or an adult. So you read into things and take them on as being your 
fault maybe Mm. or that you could do something that will make it worse. Mm. But this event makes sense in terms of Kelly feeling like she has to be the strong one because no one's going to come and fix things for her because James wasn't there and then her mother was obviously going through something on her own and maybe she wasn't as focused on young Kelly's emotional state. And then we also had the insight into the Olsen dynamic of the confirmation that she is the younger sibling. And by like a decent amount, she's at least four or five years younger, (laughs) which we had been wondering about because with the way that she and James deal with each other, it was a little hard to tell at first. Well, I thought it would be, I'm happy it turned out this way because I thought it would be more interesting if she were the younger one and then trying to Mm. maybe like James feels like she's lecturing him on how to take care of himself or. (laughs) I'm grown, leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, this event ties into her feeling like she has to be the strong one in terms of maybe seeming like she might be the older sibling. Mm. But Kelly comes to the realization that James had a very good reason for not being there at the funeral with her. And much like with all the other conflicts in this episode where a character reveals something deeply vulnerable or deeply personal, her reaction is to accept it. Mm-hmm. And to say, oh my god, that was horrible, but how can I help you? Yeah. And how can we move on? And we saw that in three or four different ways in this episode. So, But we saw Alex play a role in helping Kelly feel safe and secure in this episode. Mm-hmm. She was very supportive. In a very Alex way. <laughs> and it kind of made up for last week when <laughs> <laughs> Alex tried to connect with Haley to then be able to persuade her. This was a more organic and natural look for Alex and worked out better. Amazing. She sort of said that Kelly wasn't obligated to help James because it would make her feel pretty terrible and relive a traumatic memory for her. And that made Kelly feel validated and and secure enough that she felt like she could do it. And you know what's kind of neat about it? It's kind of like how Alex chose James to be the person to advocate for her in the Black Mercy episode. Hmm about whether to keep her in or pull her out. So that was a nice little connection there between like the two families and the two combinations of siblings. Yeah, It is interesting, though, because Alex in that situation was like, I'm going in and no one can stop <laughs> Let me. Let me die if you have <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah, um, like. <laughs> but then Alex here is supporting Kelly's possible decision of not going for it. Yeah. In a way that I can't see like someone like Cara doing. Yeah. Well, but and it also in its own subtle way is reinforcing the whole stronger together idea where like Kelly confronted by the thought of having to just do that Mm. unprepared and unprompted. It was like daunting. But then knowing that she has someone there who will say like, hey, this is too much like enough. Yeah gives her kind of the confidence to say like, all right, I can test my limit and see Hmm. what happens. Well, if you think about it in terms of someone who has this sort of psychology of I have to be the strong one and feeling obligated, like it's on her shoulders, the resistance to that and being like, no, I don't want to have to be the strong one here. Like this is like the worst day of my life. I don't want to have to relive that. This is a big deal for me too. Yeah. But then being told like, no, you don't have to do this makes it feel less like a weight. Mm. So Alex did a good job of supporting her here. But that's what Alex is good at. So It's funny because she sort of connects to that same idea of like being maybe the strong one. She says, you know, you and I are a lot alike. We're really good at taking care of other people, but not so good at taking care of ourselves. Which is interesting because then she throws herself right into taking care of other people <laughs> yes. in that scene. But it, it's also recognizing that she has that trait, yeah. which is also nice. There is a commonality there, which will be interesting to see then if it flips around as they get to know each other better and Kelly kind of will call her out on it. Mm, that'd be nice. In a way that didn't happen, perhaps, in previous seasons as much as it could have. Hmm. And speaking of that sort of role that they both play, Alex says, I know how hard it is to see a sibling in pain, which is interesting because... Big understatement. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's probably not an understatement for her (laughs) because she doesn't remember all the Supergirl events. True. So she is probably thinking of more Car Danvers examples. That's a good point. And actually, thank you for saying it in a way that I can bring this point up. We haven't seen all that much of Kara and Alex together in the last couple of Mm. episodes. And that, I have a feeling, was really deliberate (laughs) because we're going to get some payoff for it Mm. soon. So Gotta love payoff. Looking forward to it. (laughs) That'll be a wild ride and I'm excited. 
hard same. And speaking of sort of payoff of certain narrative elements that they've been setting up, Baker enacted martial law a couple episodes ago, and we're just now really seeing the effects of it on the aliens of National City. Mm. The episode started with an alien being chased after, and they're yelling like, go home alien, it's after dark. So that curfew that was imposed, they're using that as an excuse to be able to hunt down aliens. Aliens are just going about their night. <laughs> and speaking of home, Franklin, the reporter at Kako, was afraid to go home. He was sleeping under his desk. And we also, of course, saw the aliens who were taking shelter at the bar. Yes. They also finally gave us an official name for the bar mm -hmm. or something along those lines. It's Al's Dive Bar. <laughs> nice. Now we have something to call it as opposed to just the alien bar, which is also a nice touch in terms of like making the aliens feel like real people in National City and not just like <laughs> generic alien bar <laughs> that people go to. Yeah. And in terms of the world building, we also, with this scene of all these aliens hiding and then also the input we get about Franklin and then his sister, we're building on the tension that was introduced last week when Colonel Haley says that her daughter's teacher has disappeared and might be in hiding. Mm -hmm. So they're doing their best to give us context clues about how the situation is escalating and how quickly and how dangerous that is. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting, Haley wasn't present in the DEO scenes this week. Yeah. Lockwood has like taken full control of the DEO, it looks like. Also, probably why Alex isn't there either, <laughs> yeah. now that I think about it. Fair. The safest way to not get fired is to just not come. <laughs> like, I'm taking a lot of sick days. <laughs> I mean, that's one way people do it, mm. to resist that kind of stuff. You take your paid leave. Mm. So I, I do wonder where Haley is, but we still have allies in the DEO, apparently. Yeah, that was exciting. They didn't develop as much regarding Alex in her leadership role as I anticipated at the beginning of the season, but we did see that other agents obviously have a good working relationship with her because we saw a moment of somebody texting her to warn her that the Children of Liberty were coming after Kara. Yeah. So that was nice. It was, but it was also just random little nitpick related to Kara and the powers. They made such an emphasis of showing her using all her various powers as Kara Danvers, and then she missed like eight phone calls <laughs> and the entire Children of Liberty militia coming into the building. Well, if we're talking about Kara's tunnel vision in this episode. <laughs> also a valid point. Mm. All right, I'll buy it. <laughs> Speaking of your nitpicks in that scene. <laughs> yeah, well, this one was just Nia specifically said something to Brainy about fighting as an alien, but they had him fight with his image inducer turned on against people who are at the <laughs> DEO and would know what he looks like. So that was a little bit weird as yeah. a choice. Like I get that a lot of the time they do that because the makeup is really time consuming, but yeah. still it was a little strange. Although he didn't want to go into the situation, if I recall correctly, because they would see him, but then he thought the lights turning off would solve his <laughs> problem. So maybe he thought that was enough. <laughs> Maybe. <sighs> that was my thought. I was like, I guess it being dark will help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both Kara and Brady were making some risks there in terms of their They were taking identity. advantage of the... Yeah. yeah. The moment of Kara hitting the guy's face onto the copy machine was like <laughs> such a great little silly action movie I, moment. I so wanted to see the printout <laughs> right. results of that. I hope James hangs it on the conspiracy wall <laughs> as like a prize. <laughs> Frame it. It can go right next to the picture that he took of Kara being a superhero. <laughs> Perfect. It'll be great. Her wall at home. But the, it would have been sort of reminiscent of the phone booth scene in season three. Oh, right. Yeah. Speaking, though, of things they did a nice job with, Sam Witwer was fantastic at playing an awful human being. <laughs> so good at it. In this episode. He really committed to it, and I'm sure that was a challenge, having seen him talk in interviews about playing the character. So mm. His, like, random yelling. <laughs> yes, and his dramatic yell at the end. <laughs> But they definitely leaned all in on making it really clear in case you hadn't figured it out yet that the Children of Liberty are a stand-in for extremely racist, Nazi-like groups of people. Mm -hmm. They were wearing armbands like the Nazis. You even had Lockwood dressed in a suit aesthetic that was very similar to pictures of their uniforms. He had the pin on his lapel. Yeah. You also saw the way that he was saying that his son needed to spend more time getting the stomach for assaulting and arresting people mm -hmm. is actually 
very similar to techniques that were used to indoctrinate teenage boys into the Hitler Youth. Like, all of that was nicely done in an accuracy way to make you feel really unsettled and uncomfortable. Yeah. Another sort of unsettling aspect of that sort of indoctrination, Lockwood made it all seem very like normal. His tone with dealing with his son, George, was kind of like, oh, yeah, I know it can be difficult when they look like humans, but acknowledging that he feels that way, like it's a normal thing to have to get over. And he says like, you can't humanize them, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting key phrase there. But George's storyline in this episode was interesting, a nice kind of development we saw there with him a couple times kind of voicing how he's uncomfortable with what's happening, but then being encouraged to move past that. But then it kind of comes to a head when he sees his friend from school in Ailes Dive Bar running away from him. And George is like, why didn't you tell me? And he's like, why why do you think? (laughs) Right. As George is like leveling a baton at him to smack him. Like, (laughs) but the other thing with that characterization there. I like how they've juxtaposed him against Lockwood because when we saw Lockwood presented at the start of the season, he was very much this intellectual, like this thinking man. Mm. And instead of actually thinking, he just let his emotions and his ego push him down this destructive, horrible path. But you now have George, who is in that phase of being a teenager where you do start to question everything, particularly your family, also demonstrating that he's a thinker, too. (laughs) And in a way that I said to you made me wonder if they're going to borrow from the real life story of this man named Derek Black, whose father indoctrinated him into a white supremacy movement and made him like the youth face of it. And then when he went to college, he realized the whole thing was totally wrong and left it completely. Mm. So if that happens, that will be kind of neat. Yeah. We see him ask his mother about his dad's quote unquote policies. A kind way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And his mom's reaction is a little bit disturbing Mm -hmm. because we saw in the flashback in 403 Man of Steel that she was totally on board with, oh, we don't say those kind of terrible things. We're not that kind of family. And then in this one, she's like, yeah, those roaches need to die. And it's like, wow, you just jump on board with whatever people say. All right. Yeah. That's creepy. Specifically her husband. Yes. <laughs> we basically saw the process of her making that decision that she was going to do that when Lockwood was arrested and he was being ushered into the prison. And, and she went from like looking like she was like contemplating it to just that process of, and I care about my husband more <laughs> than my initial personal feelings about it. So that's an interesting role that we see this character in of being the wife of somebody and just following their terrible ideas and practices. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, going back to George and his process of recognizing that his father's policies are terrible. Nia's broadcast as Dreamer plays a huge role in that and shifting his perception. It sort of humanizes Nia. She lists all those facts about herself and you have to recognize that she's like a person like any human would be. She says, I'm different, Miss Danvers, but so is everybody. And that's the line that we see resonate with George. Mm. And then that's just nice in terms of representing representation (laughs) and how important (laughs) it is and how it can affect people and specifically children, which is, you know, we've talked about like a hundred times in this uh, season, in this podcast, how Supergirl of a show is cognizant of how their own programming affects children and how in the season the narrative affects the characters who are children Mm -hmm. and we're seeing them demonstrate how powerful they think that positive representation is and how it affects this kid George. Yep and his closing beat is we see him deliberate for a little bit and then decide to text his friend and say you know what I'm here if you need help Mm -hmm. but this is before Ben Lockwood's horrible decisions come back to bite him Mm. because there's a female alien who whose husband he had arrested earlier in the episode, she shows up and decides to retaliate by killing his wife. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if George's resolve might shake, at least temporarily, now that he has a very visceral kind of reason to be angry again. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I could see it going either way, personally, in terms of the audience thinking that, oh, we're going to go down again and go backwards with this character. 
character and him instead sort of powering through with the compassion that he has. Yeah, or it could be the opposite because that scene where they were arresting that man was what made him question whether or not this was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So he might also look at it and say like, well, your actions caused this to his father. Yeah, so we'll have to see. It could go either way, Mm -hmm. like a number of interpersonal (laughs) storylines. But as we saw in this episode, often the show will opt toward the happy, compassionate, forgiving option. Correct. They usually do. (laughs) And when there is tension, it's usually resolved fairly quickly. (laughs) So to round out our podcast episode and also our discussion of the episode, the final beat of the episode was of Jean on Mars going back to return the sacred scrolls and he has another kind of like Lion (laughs) King-esque moment with the spirit of his father. I didn't register that. (laughs) But in terms of this idea of kind of being honest with yourself and being vulnerable to others... This was Jean's kind of closure of that from when he had that whole big psychological arc in 417. And I liked it as the closing beat of the episode because it also felt like a really nice acknowledgement of all the hard work David put in to direct the episode. Mm -hmm. Everything about it was structured to kind of give him a really full experience and also to make the most of his strengths as an actor and a director in this particular episode. Mm -hmm. So that was really nice. Like he got to work with pretty much the whole cast. And the scenes were structured in a way where, like, there weren't so, so many details to juggle, but they still were very character-driven and moved the plot. And he even got to do some action stuff. Mm -hmm. And he seems to like the action stuff as an actor, so (laughs) I bet he enjoyed that. Yes, although they also tried to kind of minimize how much work it would be because it was Kara using her powers in everyday situations where there wasn't, like, a lot of wire work or some of the powers could be added later as special effects. Mm -hmm. So logistically, it wasn't quite as strenuous. And you also had that lovely showcasing of the story for not just James, but the young actor that they brought in. And they've done a few episodes like that where you have like a multi-generational cast of black men. So that was Mm -hmm. really nice as well. And it fit in in terms of the style really well with the Mm -hmm. rest of the season. So he did a solid job. The coloring of this episode was interesting in comparison to the other Mm. ones because there were a lot of dark scenes because we had the scene in Kako with the lights off. Mm. And then there was some interesting stuff for David to do in terms of camera work and arranging the scenes within James's mind palace. So that had to have been fun. Well, and then also how do you portray Kara and Nia giving a broadcast? That was another Mm -hmm. interesting way that they chose to frame it. It was a little bit different than like when we saw it in Myriad. And I thought it got a little more into the, the heads of the people watching. Yeah. So he did a good job. He did. And we are looking forward to seeing him back in action in front of the camera, Mm -hmm. presumably as we go into the last few episodes, because as we've noticed, there's been a lack of uh, Jean and his children lately. (laughs) So maybe we'll get to see some more, perhaps, given that we've already read the synopsis of some of the episodes coming up. So we'll be back next week to talk about episode 20, in which Kara and Lena are going to go on a trip to Kosnia, where they might run into evil Eve Tessmacher, <laughs> who is out to make some mischief and cause problems for them. Hmm. We'll get to see maybe Kara finally uncover the fact that her doppelganger exists. Possibly. And as far as the rest of the characters, we don't know yet. So we'll have to see what happens with James dealing with these powers now and with how Jean is going to be after making peace with his memories of his father and himself as a Martian. So Hmm. what does the Martian Manhunter look like? You know, exactly. Speaking of this identity theme for our (laughs) alien characters that we've had all season. Yeah. We're getting into the home stretch. Get excited. (laughs) And you can share your excitement with us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram at Supergirls Attic. Or if you haven't done it yet and you'd like to, you can also subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. And then you can go back and listen to some of the early episodes of the season like I did and remember all of the nifty things that are about to come together. Mm -hmm. So we will be back next week with a new episode. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.